The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. We want to welcome our podcasters today. We have been in a series, as many of our listeners know. We've been in a series that has been covering the definition of terms. And we've been kind of doing a mini-series within that series on the true power and message of the cross. Last couple uh, podcasts, we have been dealing with the misinterpretations and the mystic elements that come with the cross and to communicate that we are flawless because of the power of the cross is the cleanest and clearest message of the cross but that is not what is being left with us on a daily basis by people who use the cross so today's message is called rejecting the symbols of the cross and the, and the symbols, that's plural. If you just had the symbol of the cross, that's one thing. But the symbols that come with the cross is what we need to reject. So we're going to talk about a couple of those details. So for our listeners, this is a mini-series that we have devoted to defining and explaining the practical and practically making use of the biblical terms given to us by our Lord. Primarily in the area of not I and Christ, but Christ, or the exchange life, the abundant life, whatever your church group is used to using to communicate that. Ian, if you want to come and read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first 17 verses, that would be awesome. Paul, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among, among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will stain you to the end guiltless in the day, day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful by who, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Christ Jesus and our Lord I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all you, of you agree that there, there, that there be no divisions among you that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What it, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, Ian. The message that Paul is very clear in presenting letter after letter is the message of the cross. Now what he's addressing here specifically in this passage, so our online listeners, I'd really, really encourage you to go to your Bible, and uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-17, through 17, and carefully study those passages. Paul is warning the people to quit putting him on a pedestal or anyone else. Because we are not baptized in his name. But keep in mind that Paul was a minister known in the demonic world by name. These demons would say, we know Jesus Christ and we know Paul, but who are you? You would think that every believer would be known in the demonic world. And the fact is that every believer is not known in the demonic world because they are passive with the power of the cross. And that's the facts. So there are many believers today that have figured that out. So what they do is they don't engage in ministry. They don't engage in giving the gospel uh, to others. They don't go ye into all the nations and make disciples. They don't do what is asked of them because once they became become known in the spirit world, they'll be under attack. And that's what this passage is about. Anyone who has the ability to read or to listen to someone who's reading the word figures out quickly that if you engage in giving the gospel away, you've got a bullseye on your chest. And the enemy is going to come after you. But if you stay passive and rebellious in your passivity, somehow you think that the enemy's not going to come after you. But I'm here to tell you, you already have an arrow pierced in your heart by the fiery missile of Satan. You're already stopped. So keep that in mind as we start to move forward with this final message of talking about what is really the power of the cross. What is it? What is the real message of Christianity? <coughs> this message could change lives, and that is my prayer today. So rejecting the mystic cross. Every reference to the cross and crucifixion in the entire New Testament is applicable one of these five categories. One, it's a material object of the cross. Two, it's a historical event of Jesus Christ. Three, it's a theological significance. It's, it's a theological statement of the cross. And number four, it is the body of Christ's spiritual identification, which is primarily what this series is about. That's the point we're hitting as heavy as we possibly can. This is the believer's statement of co-identification. When Christ took on the identification of the Father by being obedient and going through the cross, that identification was given to us as a gift when we went through the cross. 
So whatever Jesus adopted from his father or inherited from his father in identification, as we pass through the cross that identification, his flawlessness becomes our flawlessness. So when you hear Christians talking about performance or striving or trying to work at appropriating the cross or, or works oriented with grace, I call them gracealistic. They're not living the life of grace. They're practicing it. Huge difference. One is mystic, and the other one is true freedom. You see, a black man doesn't need to practice being black. He's black. A white man doesn't need to practice being white. He's white. Any black man that's got to get up every morning and say, I'm African American, I'm black. Or any white man that gets up and says, I am white, and I need to practice being white. That's sin. Do you understand that? When you have to practice what you already are, it is sin. When you have to convince yourself what you already are, it is sin. Because a white man getting up every morning say, you know, Lord, I really need to apply that I'm a white man today. That's called racism. Or a black man getting up every morning and say, Lord, I really need to practice that I'm black today. Well, you and I can hear that analogy and say that's just absolutely <clears throat> that's just absolutely ridiculous. You don't practice who you are. You function in who you are and you rest. You see, I get up every single morning as a white man and I function as a white man because it's the way I was created. Just as a black man should, just as an oriental person should, just as whatever. So when it comes to skin, the most external material object of my humanity, that should be a duh. But it isn't. When it comes to the body of Christ identifying with their spiritual flawlessness in Christ Jesus. You can send me those texts now at 602-292-2982 because there are racist Christians all over the world. And if you don't really understand what I mean by that, I'd really like to hear from you. Because anyone who has to practice who they are, they're a racist. They're putting an emphasis on something that is already in existence. And you are not living who you are, you're practicing who you're supposed to be. Huge difference in Christendom. There are no scriptures whatsoever to justify the mystical application of the cross of Jesus in an ongoing crucifixion experience. These are people, and I have done that, I will be one, you know, the first to admit it, of constantly working to apply co-crucifixion. When I'm in a situation that just seems to be so unbearable and I just say, okay, I'm crucified with Christ, I'm crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who lives, okay, but it's Christ who lives in me. And you're like, 
doing this mantra of some religious group that was over in India of saying the mantra to convince yourself what the mantra means. It's idolatry and it's racism. You're putting such a focus on who you say you are, you are becoming separate in respects of the body of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of people who say that they are exchange lifers or abundant life people or union life people or whatever it is you want to call it who are nothing more than racist. They do not understand the true neutrality of the body of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ represents a a bloodline that is not white. He represents a bloodline that is not black. He represents a bloodline that is of no religion or race. So when you're having to remind yourself who you are and that we have special holidays for black people, but not white people. We have special holidays for yellow people, but not, you know, whatever race or religion. You're so used to having holidays that are associated with people who demand their rights for their race, you forget the fact is that that is sin. Christ truly is representing the entire human race. I'm going to say it one more time. Christ Jesus is representing the entire human race. Singular race. So you think through your country's beliefs. You think, you think through your, your little holidays. You're the one that has to think about how, how come we have to always separate people out and say they're the first black president. They're the first white whatever. Why do we do that? Because we're trying to secure the identity and the material aspect of our lives. The continued crucifixion process of Jesus Christ, and there is uh, many Protestant individuals, authors, teachers, some denominations that still promote it. Certainly the Roman Catholic Church claims that the process of communion is a re-crucifixion process that needs to be appropriated before you have the forgiveness of sins in that communion service. You see, that's why when certain religions drink from the cup that they literally have to convince themselves this is actually the blood of Jesus. And as the the priest is presenting it before this Christ who's still on the cross to turn this cup of wine into blood, so when the priest drinks it, he's drinking the blood of Christ. Why? Because it reactivates Jesus dying on the cross, hanging on that wall. You think I'm lying? Well, I'm going to show you something. Here's our quote for the day. By the grace of Jesus Christ, God has accomplished his most significant work through us. Placing Christ in us. 
do remember that what he accomplished is not a matter of self-promotion or even a quality sermon that I could preach or anyone else could preach. It's not getting the message across clearly, even though that's important. See, it's the same thing as that it's not that you're able to live it or to say the right words as you're talking to someone this week. That's not the proof. If we expose the works of God through self-effort and not through Christ's effort through us, God will be quick to bring death upon that action of self-effort of applying the identity truths of Jesus Christ. Nothing that we can say or communicate or write or share in any way will bring the power of the cross to a person's life outside of the life of Christ in us. That's the only thing. That's the only thing that grants absolute healing and deliverance is Christ doing it through you. So, we have to ask ourselves the question, shall we crucify Christ again? Now, I don't know about you guys, but it sure is easy for me to look at certain churches, one in particular, and to be guilty of keeping Christ on the cross. But the truth being said that those of us who have to practice our identity in Christ, that we have to get up every morning and remind ourselves of who we are, and that we pray for patience or we pray for the not I but Christ and there's so much work that is being poured into who you are, we're still doing this. Those identity people who are saying, okay, I'm this not I but Christ, this not I, and you are somehow trying to convince yourself of that, you're putting Christ back on the cross instead of appropriating an empty cross. So we need to count the reasons why the theories of mystical or magical application of the cross and its continued crucifying activity needs to be rejected by all of us. Here's a few pictures of what you probably have even seen this week. Whether it was in a book or in an article or on the top of a church building or whatever the case may be. We somehow keep the picture of crucifixion before us. Now, one church may have this on the side of the building and another church in the next block may have an empty cross. And the church over here that has Christ still on the cross would actually look at the church that has an empty cross and say, that's blasphemy. Now, I know the details of the doctrines of the cross that's not empty and the cross that is empty. And the reason why those two have never gotten along until this recent pope has made a proclamation that all religions are under the Catholic Church now, as of November 11, 2014, is that these two crosses no longer matter is a bold-faced lie because I can talk to someone within that structure and say, 
we are just bringing the Protestants alongside, which they've never done before. So they literally have it divided into true holiness and wannabes, empty cross people and those who leave the symbol and power on the cross. If you think that just drinking that cup goes from wine to blood, you need to understand that when they hold up that cross, when they're walking down the aisle, when they go and rub their hand up against that, that statue, they believe they're touching Christ. And that's why they come up with uh, stuff like you're seeing right now where you have Mary crying blood. Well, that's pure idolatry because there was only one person that I know that would sweat blood. And that was Jesus Christ. There are these stories all over the world. I found 340 of them ready to be printed. Of statues that were bleeding, sweating, and somehow magically producing the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they have to re-crucify him. You see, why? Because that cup has to catch that blood. Now, that leaves us with a question of, how are these statues bleeding? Either magic? Well, that would be a confession of where the religion comes from. Or there's an order of priests that are responsible for faking these things. Or both. This is a horrific problem in the Catholic Church. That people actually think by hanging on to some beads and going bead by bead and finally getting to that Jesus Christ who's still on the cross is going to provide some type of deliverance through their confessions. By somehow getting close enough to one of these bleeding statues to touch them brings some kind of deliverance. To think that a piece of marble brings deliverance should be common sense for any indwelt Christian to say, this is beyond idolatry, this is satanic. But that's not what happens. I can assure you there are people around us in this community that believe that statues have power. Why do we make statues? To give them power. That's why they started statues. To give power. So when you talk about all the passages that are in the Bible that deal with idolatry, which are thousands you will clearly see why God has an issue with statues. To try to make them talk. To try to make them breathe. To try to make them bleed. Try to make them... There are endless stories in the Word. And if you do not know these stories of idolatry, you should be reading your Bible more. Because they're in there. And there are endless stories of tr supposedly true believers falling on their face and, and worshiping a Christmas tree. Remember that out of 
Isaiah or Jeremiah, I guess it was. And they, the, the stories go on and on. Pet rocks in your pocket, lucky socks. It goes on and on. It goes everywhere. But we won't call it what it is. Satanic. So we come up with these images and somehow keep Christ hanging on the cross and re-bleeding. I think that'd be a good place where Satan would want him to stay is in the dying process. There's no life in his death. There is life for the believer in his life. We are saved by his life. We're not saved by his death. We are saved by his life, the resurrection life. And to keep him in a constant dying process would be a perfect way for the enemy to deceive. Christian theology is based on the grace activity of God. Someone please remind us what the term grace means. It is an accounting term. Unmerited favor of God. Unmerited means there's nothing you can do to earn it. Now what I just said, particularly with you Exchange Life listeners, you're probably like, duh. But you know what I really want to challenge you with? Is how much of your daily living is still making grace work for you? How much are you paying through your performance to make grace work for you? How, how many times do you have to remind yourself of grace? Self-reminder, self-application, self, how whatever you want to put after self is idolatry. Instead of just living it. And if there's moments when you slip off the focal point of what grace truly means, unmerited, that you just simply get back up. That's what you do. It's not going through this re-crucifixion process and re-burial process and re-resurrection process because you're just admitting to self again. True functioning in the identity of Christ is... Positional, not conditional. Within the indwelt Christian life, God's continuing activity is not reliant on your activity or refusal of sin. I would dear guess that 95% plus of every indwelt Christian walk in the face of the earth is concerned about their sin, their attitude, their mindset. Well, today I congratulate you on acknowledging that's idolatry. Anytime you stop and take a look at self, that's idolatry. Anytime you stop and may be reminded by the spirit of what unmerited favor looks like is pure Christian walk. All Satan wants to do with the indwelt believers is to stop and get hung up in self-talk, self-promotion, 
self-reminders, self-application. And he's got you. Instead of just getting up after you fall, not focusing on the sin that you tripped over, but just getting up and walking again. You don't have to write a book about that experience. Just walk it. And that brings a lot of confusion to the world today. We do not affect Christian living by engaging in any particular activity, specifically self-crucifixion. The Christian life is not a matter of doing our best so God can do his best or the rest. How many times have we heard that one? Repetitive demands that the indwelt Christian should die to self, apply the cross, surrender, be broken, all reveal a self-effort approach to a formalized, rule-based Christian life, which is a theology of works sanctification. Particularly, the ramp, particularly rampant is the uh, admonition of reckoning oneself dead so God can work or Christ can work through you. We simply need to walk in what is already true, and that is done through the completed work of the cross. Remember when Paul said, I dare not evaluate myself? This is what he means. When you evaluate yourself, it's idolatry. Now to have someone evaluate or comb over your life is not you evaluating yourself. You're saying... You're saying to this person, could you show me my false thinking? Could you show me these false theories I'm abiding to? Soon as self turns in to look at self, what are you going to get? You're going to get locked in. But see, since the main problem in Christendom today is a rebellion against authority, we have a generation that mentally disengages any time they hear a strong, authoritative voice. They cannot be taught. They have to teach themselves. So, in life, you notice that our verbiage, obviously, like the verbiage we use a lot of times, is incorrect. Like, it leads, we lead one another in our verbiage. You know what I'm saying? So, what would you say to, you know what I mean? Like, I especially notice that, like, when we ask for prayer, do you know what I mean? Like, pray for me to, you know what I mean, die to self, die, you know what I'm saying? How would we then appropriate that better verbally? How, how would we better verbally communicate so that it doesn't... Okay, here's a classic example. So when Tina asked me to pray for... Matthew and his friend as they travel to, you know, go to places that they have not been before, whatever the, whatever the request is. I don't pray that. What I pray is that God uses the circumstances that are within this journey to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they will be turned toward him. Not that they can get there safely so mama's heart can be at peace. That's idolatry. That's using your kids like there's something special. We're not special. Our children die daily. Our children get into accidents. What about those people? God doesn't care for them? It's not the point. The point is God using all things for His good. Those who love Him 
and are called according to his mission. That's the whole point of living, is to love God and to be called according to his mission. That's the only point of life. And that sounds pretty selfish on God's part, and I'm glad that it does. So we live in a culture, in a world today, where everything's about don't condemn me. Don't speak strong to me. You're judging me. You're, we live in such a twisted version of a grace life that we have no clue how to pray for people anymore. Why pray for protection of someone versus appropriating the protection that has already been promised to them? But if God allows circumstances within that promise, that happens all the time, all day long. There's going to be a child run over by a car within 10 minutes of what I just said. Well, what about them? What about that family? You see, so what we do is we, we create little idols in the way that we communicate, the way that we pray, and we think that we're something special. And the fact is, we're already special as children of God. And it is engaging in what he's already established in protection, appropriation, a life. It's done. It's finished. The work is completed. Why are we asking for more? The term appropriation is dangerous to start with. And just keep in mind that the word appropriation only started in the 70s. It became very, very popular in our language. And so it's been literally wrapped into Christendom. It's kind of a fruitless word, honestly. But, you know, we can't remove words from the dictionary. They get added every week. And so we have to kind of move with the culture. But here's the deal. When I see someone who is engaged in sin, if I put the focus on the sin, I'm trapping them. They're not going to be free. If I am engaging someone and I put the heavy emphasis on brokenness, I'm praying for brokenness. Everything's about brokenness. I'm trapping them because humans are designed to focus on negative things. They want to hurt people. Everyone who's listening right now, it is a part of your Adamic human design to hurt people. It's your goal. So that is the fleshly mode of operation is to hurt people. So when you're constantly putting your emphasis on it, you're constantly, you know, whatever, you're trapping them. But when you shift them to realizing God is breaking them through whatever decisions they make for a complete dependence on him, that should be where we join him, where he's at work. And that is, yes, acknowledging if they say, I think God is just breaking me, you can say, yes. He wants a surrendered life with you so that he can have an intimate relationship with you through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And those are talking about the final results of the final work of Christ. That's how it should work. So in, in Kristen's question, if I heard what you're saying right, would they, what she's saying is, what do I do with it? So what you're saying is, instead of analyzing and appropriating what's already true, when the Spirit convicts you, you simply agree. Yeah, God's God of the yes. God's God of the yes, and thank you. 
If you have a thought that yourself, you as the indwell believer are being dealt with by God, your response is, yes, Lord. I hear, I hear you. You don't have to do this because that's what throws you off. It's just, yes, Lord, I hear you. And if God's bringing conviction of someone else that's in your life, you can say, yes, Lord, I agree with you. I hear you. And then you can pray in a specific way that that person is moved into a higher calling. The ultimate goal for Matthew is that he's obedient in a higher calling with Jesus Christ. It isn't anything else. And God will use everything else to bring Matthew to that one specific, absolute, immovable thing that he does every day. Gets out of bed and says, I know that I know what I'm supposed to do today. That's why I wanted to show you the video update on Nick. He gets up every single day. I stay in tune with his ministry. Every single day he gets up and he knows exactly what he's supposed to do. He says, the only reason why I'm here today before you is to offer you that one person hope. You see, that's the gateway to the exchange life. Not putting emphasis on flesh. I don't even know if Nick understands the exchange life, but he sure is demonstrating a lot of qualities of it. And if you had every single indwelt believer on the face of the earth getting up every single day going, I know that I know what I'm supposed to do today. This world would implode overnight. You would see Christian persecution in a way you've never seen it before. And that's why you don't do it. Freshly converted Muslim. Freshly converted Hindu follower. Freshly converted Mormon. Freshly converted. That's why you don't open your mouth is because you're afraid to be persecuted. So if you think God likes to fix the fix that he's got fixed on you to get you fixed always from trying to fix yourself, you're being lied to. God uses those things to bring you to an absolute point of saying, not I. i got to suffer this out. Because you told me in the finished work of your cross that I have to suffer as you suffered. And that I suffer with myself. To be able to open my eyes in a given moment and go, this isn't turning out like I expected. And to hear Christ going, I think that's my point, Stephen. No, but I put out a text, pray that this works out of court, you know. So a lot of times we're literally telling people to pray against the hand of God. The focus of most crucifixionism teachers leads the body of Christ astray. They are preoccupied with self instead of Christ in the believer. Preoccupied with getting rid of sin instead of the Savior who became sin on their behalf so they could have that deliverance. 
preoccupied with death instead of his inward life, which is the opposite of death, preoccupied with the cross instead of the finished work of the cross. As a result, they are inventing a new form of works-oriented grace that involves the proactive work of suppressing self. Not I, it's not me. It's not I, it's not I, it's not... Do you see the idolatry in that? Like you've got some kind of strength to appropriate the cross? You have nothing. You're going to sin. As soon as you're done with that prayer, you're going to sin up again. Because you just came out of idolatry. You're literally walking out of saying, I just had a you know, sweet time with my idol. Me. We raise selfish children so they can be statues under their own success. Then God has to strip them down and push those, those statues off the pedestals, typically when they're in their 20s. To be broken. We don't break them. God does the breaking process. So they feel like they are dust on the floor and there's nothing left to their life and, and you know, they're without a leg now or maybe like Nick, he has no limbs. Why? What's the reason for me living, God? Get up, Nick. We have a mission today. But I have no hands. I have no arms. I have no feet to walk. I have no legs. I'm just a stump, Lord. Get up, Nick. But Nick can't get up without help. To think that he's married and has a, a little boy now? What's up with that? He should be in an institution somewhere stuck in a corner. But that's not the point. And Nick was able to embrace the point of life. It's to live. That's a tough one for us, guys. So as a result, they're inventing this new form of grace, works-oriented grace that involves proactive work of suppressing self, which, by the way, leads to gracelistic confessionism of sin. They do not understand the finished work of Jesus Christ and the grace provision of God provided by placing his son inside his actual bride. So in other words, he, he's ready and willing to say, you can't do this. It's impossible. So these agnostics are lying to us. This term describes a collection of ancient religions whose believers shunned the material world initially, which they viewed as fashioned by the craftsmen of the spirit world. Well, who's that? Which is true. They don't believe in the one God. But it's kind of this spiritual belief, but it has no answer to it. So this is a perfect setup for idolatry. Because literally, the enemy can fashion from the spirit world anything that gives them some type of satisfaction and hope. So agnostic ideas influence many ancient religions that teach that agnosis, promoters of knowledge, enlightenment, salvation, emancipation, or oneness with the great architect. Well, what cultural group do we hear use the term great architect? Masons. In fact, if you do a true historical study on this word, you're going to find that many of these beliefs come from this pluralistic, relaxed view of wherever you find power is fine with us. In a pen, in a rabbit's foot, in your favorite little socks, 
It doesn't matter. You see, Satan could care less about the marble of the statue. He could care less if there's priests that are assigned to make these things bleed. He doesn't care. But what he does care about is that you cling to an enlightenment in your life. You cling to a great architect. You cling to some kind of master craftsman of the spirit world. Because you'll never find the one true God. Or the son of the one true God. So everything becomes external in what it is that you have to practice to continue to find your hope and your religious values. So agnosticism is required in order for the Antichrist to produce this one world government and this one world religion. Because any true leader knows if you want to get control of the people, you have to control their externals. So it's a common sense thing to put religious value and belief in idolatry. Because all you have to do is manipulate the statue and you have all these people crying. Spending thousands of dollars from their, their, their budgets that they don't have to travel to go touch one of these statues. When I go and visit online all of these special Jesus Christ places like his crucifixion, his birthplace, where he, where he was in the garden, whatever. You see these rocks, and they, they literally are buffed into a high gloss. Why is that? Hey, they touch them. They, they, they walk up to, to them, and they're like, this is where Jesus, he probably touched this rock. You know what I mean? Many go walk into, I was checking this out this week, many people walk into the Sea of Galilee and experience immediate healing from their physical ailments. Because Jesus... It's idolatry. There's not an ounce of sweat left in the Sea of Galilee of any of our original uh, workers of the New Testament. It's ridiculous. But it works for some reason. Elitism is another problem that we have in the indwelled Christian world, but the cultic thinking often develops attitudes of elitism or exclusivism wherein they regard themselves as more spiritual, more mature, God's special people, the remnant of God's true followers. The spiritual pride underlining such attitudes is evident in many teachers of the cross. All indwell believers are God's people, whether they understand the true theology of what we're presenting today. Whether you understand it or not, you're no different. The indwell believer down the street who's attending a, a church that we could easily label anti-indwell Christian church makes no difference. They're just like me. They're just like you. But we do have the tendency to set ourselves up as elitist. We do. We've got something they don't have. Well, you may have an understanding of something they don't have. But the body of Christ is the body of Christ all over the world. And the cool thing about it is when you speak truth to a body member of Christ, they immediately get it. They don't go to need to go to seminary to figure out who you are in Christ. It's in them. You're appealing to truth that is already in them. And we get a text that says, thank you for that message on Sunday. It revived my soul. Well, of course it did. You hear truth, you get revved up. 
Theological perfectionism, referring oftentimes to the deeper Christian life and the victorious Christian life. Some of the writers indicate that the Christian can arrive at a level of Christian experience where he or she no longer sins. This is what is recently, meaning the past hundred years, has been labeled as sinless perfection. Exchange life teachers and workers and walkers oftentimes get associated with this, this movement that is out there called sinless perfection. So when I say, just oh, you fell, well, just get up and keep walking, would be classified as sinless perfection. Not putting an emphasis on getting that Christian to sweat it out, be truly repentant. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. Truly repentant groveling in their sins so that when they do repent, they'll never come back to it. What a lie that is. They'll be back at it in 10 minutes. And how does the indwelt believer feel after that? Guilty, self-condemned, and I'm never going to live the victorious life. You are the victorious life, whether you sin or not. And that's 602. 292. 2982, you already are 100% flawless, victorious, and without sin. But yet you can choose to sin. Which does Christ put an emphasis on? Hopefully you know the answer to that by now. No, but I'm afraid most fall into the mystic aspects of Christianity all of this mounting to the ideological symbol of the cross becoming a mystical object that allegedly serves as an agent of God. You hold the cross up high. I can remember when Jess was having nightmares, I went and bought one of these glow-in-the-dark crosses. And every night, you know, I would pray over her so she didn't have bad dreams, and I would... Remind her of the cross above her bed. And so when the lights went out, it would glow. And remind Jess that the cross would, you know, cover her thoughts and she would have good dreams. And of course, when she woke up with some bad dreams, is it not confessing that the power of the cross is fruitless? Of course it is. That's how it works. Instead of training my daughter in, she is the result of the power of the cross. Now go to bed with that. But, you know, we grow to these truths. Not into them. We grow in the truths that are existent in our soul. Daily. So with these uh, mystic believers, the cross is personified and attributed with the fundamental power of the Christian lives in order to enact the or a continued crucifixion and create spirituality through the act of man bringing the cross into your daily experience. I tell you, it's real subtle. And I don't believe there's any indwell Christian that has not been tripped up into the mysticism of the cross. It happens to all of us. Next week, we're going to go back to our definition of terms. Remembering that you can access this definition of terms dictionary by going to our website 
and that is www.iomamerica.org. And if you look at the menu of definition of terms, click on that. The dictionary is available for you online. Here's our identity statement for today. The scope of these false teachings are such that the teachers of the same surely fall within Paul's indicament of being enemies of the cross, Philippians 3.18, despite their preoccupation with the cross. In their advocacy of ongoing crucifixion, they denounce the once and for all death of Jesus Christ on the cross, implying that Christ died needlessly, as he said in Galatians 5.21. For he did not complete his work and thus make the cross of Christ void. And that's 1 Corinthians 1.17. These covert confessions are just as good for Satan as the ones shaking their fist at God. In fact, the covert confessions actually bring him more pleasure. Because you look at the indwell believer and say, you know, you're really stupid. You guys don't believe what you believe. His accuser of the brethren is so much more poignant and powerful to indwell believers than these people shaking their fist at God. Because they're angry, overtly angry at God. That's a more honest person. Then these indwell Christians running around denying the power of the finished work of the cross. We are a mess. And even the elitism that has influenced and infected the exchange life community. We're a mess. And we think that if it's not communicated our way, the perfect way, or whatever the case may be, we can separate ourselves from them. It's idolatry. They reveal their fundamental misunderstanding of the finished work of God in Christ Jesus and the sufficiency of God's grace in the indwelt Christian life. But the integrity of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ Jesus is definitely at stake here. So I can say with my mouth, I look forward to the rejection this week. Because I am going to get some comments on this one. I knew that God was wanting me to be very pointed and very honest about the mystical aspects of a lot of exchange lifers and what they're proclaiming is setting themselves up as elitist. It's everywhere. And the simple fact is, until we actually are able to communicate a proper definition of term of grace and life and the purpose of the cross, the power of the cross, we are not going to be accepting one another in Christ Jesus. We're going to set ourselves up like degree programs in the educational system. We're going to be setting ourselves up like degree levels in the Mason movement. We're going to be setting ourselves up with degree levels in Christianity. And by the way, any of you who have not been to a seminary, you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church. You know I don't believe that, but it's everywhere. And we're willing to invest in it financially. We're willing to invest in it by telling people, good job. We're willing to invest in it by saying, I'm glad you graduated. Um, we're willing to invest in it in our covert emergent ways instead of saying, you know, you really didn't have to darken the doorstep of one day of education to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You are a pastor because the gift of pastoring has been put in you through Christ Jesus, so you don't need the confirmation of man. That's gone. So we keep people on these levels of performance. So we grant them permission to be released to minister. Shame on us. 602-292-2982 because I want to hear from you because there are pastors who are duped by this degree level program that is in the world on to release the gospel to a hungry world. Get off your keisters. Fulfill the mission that God has called you to fulfill. Whatever that is, get up starting now and fulfill the mission that God has called of you. That is, if you love the Lord thy God with your whole heart. If you don't, keep fleshing out. Keep getting your degrees. Keep getting your performance-based elitism going because it's going to end up in a pile of rubble. God will bring death to it. But if you are released in the Spirit, wherever you're at, educated or not, you will be released in the power of the cross. Father, we thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you that we are already flawless. We thank you that you are the one who did this finished work through your Son. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to be obedient unto death. Then we thank you for staying in the tomb as long as you're supposed to stay in there. We thank you that as your father rolled the stone back that you walked out of that tomb and you demonstrated the power of the resurrected life and that's where we got saved. And I just pray, Father God, that that message would be burned into our hearts. And Jesus, we only pray in your name. Amen. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.